One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, thirty six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify. dot com slash work. Shopify. dot com slash work. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello. Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Kave. I always enjoy seeing the look of surprise on my guest face when they hear me do that intro. With me today, oh my goodness, we have, it's an embarrassment of riches. There's just too many people that are too awesome on this show today, and it's, it's, it's overwhelming. If I'm being honest, I'm overwhelmed. So bear with me. Uh, let's, let's start. First, we have Sophie Lichterman, producer extraordinaire. Sophie, hi. Thank you for coming on. Hey, what's up? It's it's always great to have you. Sophie is uh, the producer of all your favorite podcasts. And we have Dr. Tiffany Taft, a clinical psychologist. Uh, hi, may I call you Tiffany? Absolutely. Okay, we're going to try to go by first names in general here. Yep. Uh, Tiffany, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Nice to see you. And last but not least, we have Dr. Tyler Black, who decided to come today to the recording wearing a Lakers jersey just to spite me of course Sophie's wearing a Lakers shirt as well I think this was planned this is an organized attempt you guys are trying to chip away at my sanity and I understand this is gaslighting thank you Tiffany for not wearing a Lakers any Lakers gear I'm in bulls, this show you know so I don't have any bragging rights whatsoever since 1997 roughly right so I'll just yeah. sit here and watch and yeah fair <laughs> enough well hey listen I'm so glad you guys are here today we're going to talk about anxiety I think uh, this is always an important topic, but I mean, I don't know if there's a better time to talk about it than during a pandemic. Uh, and there's a lot to discuss before we get into that though, before we get into that, let's start with some basic stuff. We have a psychiatrist and we have a psychologist on the show. Maybe it'd be good to start with a pretty basic question, which is what is the difference between the two? How can they work together? And is there ever conflict in the different approaches between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? 
feel free to talk as much shit about the other group as you like here on the show. Get nasty. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but but let's start with the basis. What's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Tiffany, why don't you go first? Um, so a, a psychologist is a, they hold a PhD or a PsyD, P-S-Y-D, which is what I have, which is a, a doctorate in clinical psychology or a, a doctor of philosophy. Um, basic differences, we don't go to medical school. Uh, we can't prescribe medication except in some states. Um, it is allowed if you take extra classes, if you like really like school. Um, so we do uh, therapy, we work in all sorts of settings. Um, so I think the main difference is we can't prescribe or we don't prescribe and we do a lot more talk therapy than psychiatry is these days. I know in the past psychiatry did more, but I'm not sure how much is to be done these days um, because the system is just so busy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, Tyler. I mean, she has it total right. Um, the The main difference is that we're doctors, we're trained as doctors first in psychiatry. So we go through medical school, all the pre-med stuff. Then we select our residency in psychiatry. And then it's um, five to six years of training, depending on specialty. Um, because of the medical nature of it, we're able to prescribe um, medications uh, just off the bat. Um, and, and then there are some psychiatrists that specialize in therapy, but, you know, anyone who wants to do something at a, a level that, that you want to, you know, sort of say is your specialty, you kind of have to do it, um, you know, it, it, more, more fulsomely. So, you know, it's rare for a psychiatrist to do all sorts of therapy, maybe one type of therapy and then medication management, whereas psychologists therapy is their entire domain. So um, there's there's a, a wide range of therapies offered by psychologists. Is, is this something that you guys are used to working in tandem or is it kind of an either or situation? I don't know if there is a, another example I could use for, for medicine, because I don't think it's fair to compare say internal medicine and say like some other form of practice, like chiropractor. I don't feel like, I think that's two sep totally separate things. Whereas with psychiatry and psychology, they're, they're much more closely related, but is it an either or situation for patients or do you guys work in tandem? Uh, I think it's, it's um, really common to work in, in tandem with psychologists. Um, there, there is a, a total lack of amount of people who practice in mental health and having expertise in psychology and expertise in psychiatry can really play um, well together. Um, many psychologists specialize in psychometric testing and the types of in-depth testing that would be really helpful to understand someone's brain. Um, and some psychiatrists, you know, when you're running into a problem and there's some uh, really complex medical situations going on with it, psychiatrists can really help uh, work with the medical piece as well. So uh, most, most good practices, most good um, hospitals, and, and especially, you know, offline, <laughs> online, there can be some fights, but offline psychiatrists and psychologists typically uh, really get each other, really work with each other. And we're hungry to work with each other. We're typically always listening to each other um, and really learning from each other. Tiffany, is that, yeah, would, is that true? Is that true? It is. It's it. I, you know, I'm in Chicago and it, you would think in Chicago, it'd be easy to find a psychiatrist to partner with. And it's, it's actually difficult. And that's, I think one of the frustrations is if we could find a good partnership, um, that was sustainable and accessible. I think it's, that is a big problem, both in psychiatry and psychology is patients getting access to care. And so 
I may know a really great psychiatrist, but they may not be in the person's uh, insurance network, for example. And so then we're like looking for somebody else. So the system makes it hard, but I think we want, like he, like Tyler said, we want to work together. You're hungry for that partnership. I get it. Yeah. That's good. Okay. So let's move on to the subject, the the meat of the, the subject, which is anxiety. Um, which is, I think that we, uh, it's a thing that we talk about all the time. It's a thing that I think people have some sense of, but we don't have a real sense of the nuance when it comes to mental illness in general, in this country, we don't have a real sense of the nuance of it. You know, when people think of someone who's depressed, they think of somebody that's all goth wearing like all black, listening to Peter Murphy records all day or something. And they think of someone with anxiety as someone who's nervous and scared all the time or whatever, but that's not really how it presents. Is it, how would you guys define anxiety? Um, I would define anxiety as uh, it's everything is on a spectrum. Right. And so you have people who have such bad anxiety, they can't leave the house, you know, call agoraphobia, Um, And other people have what I would consider relatively reasonable anxiety, especially considering, you know, the last year and a half or so. So I think some anxiety is crippling and and really hard to live with. And other anxiety comes with life challenges and kind of comes up and down. Um, So it can really vary, I guess, to summarize that. And I, I, you know, I, I think there's often a, a mishing, a mishmash together of anxiety as a disorder and anxiety as an emotion. You know, if, if I told you right now, oh, knocking on the door is Steph Curry, um, you would be filled with a bunch of emotions and one of them might be anxiety. I didn't clean up the place or what is he going to think? Or I don't know. Maybe it would only be happiness and joy. And and why has it taken you so long, Steph? What took you so long? He wants, he wants, he wants your best pitch in one minute to give you a million dollars to launch your podcast. So I I have it ready. It's written. There's things we could do. Maybe, maybe in a less, uh, less jovial state, there's things we could do and induce your anxiety, but anxiety is a good fear. Um, It can be, really helpful. If I were to put a bear in the middle of the room, my anxiety would help me run faster than you. Um, and if, if, if I, you know, so anxiety is, is a thing that we experience. Um, it's not something to avoid, but anxiety disorders, um, are when you run into, you know, really significant life challenges because anxiety tends to run the show. And, and so because a lot of our words in, in mental health get sort of co-opted in, in sort of common language, Sometimes people can really confuse, you know, really common for someone with an anxiety disorder to talk to someone else and they'll say, oh yeah, I get anxiety too. And they're not, that's not really the type of listening that that person needs because it's a very different type of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, it, 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 we talk about the fight or flight reflex and we talk about the uses of anxiety and, and we talk about it. Um, you, you mentioned how it's useful in terms of like, say a, a bear comes into the room or you need it for survival instincts. When you're making the decision to treat it, where do you decide it's crossed the line that it needs some form of therapy as opposed to you saying, look, this is pretty normal reassurance and, and that's it. When does it cross a line into treatment? Um, I would say, you know, based on its effects on the person's ability to work, ability to function at home you know, just being able to do life as they would like to. That's one of the criteria in the book that we use. Um, you can have anxiety and as long as it's not bleeding into different parts of your life as, as it can be helpful or mild and can be managed relatively 
simply. And then there's this line of if somebody is really having a difficult time in multiple areas, that's when we look at treatment. Um, my bias is to start with therapy. And then if unable to manage with uh, therapy after like a month or so, uh, seek the help of a psychiatrist for medication. Um, so, so what are some of those red flags you're looking for that, that you're here and then now you've crossed that line. And so what are some of those red flags that you as a doctor look for? Um, I would say, so I, I see a lot of anxiety. I see people with chronic medical illnesses too. So they have a lot of anxiety about their bodies or their, how mm -hmm. their body is functioning or their illness itself. So a red flag for me would be, um, very rigid routines that if they, if they can't do it, they can't get their, their day going or, um, inability to socialize, go out to do things, um, missing a lot of work, missing a lot of school, um, and just feeling very distressed all the time. So feeling really keyed up on edge, difficulty sleeping, um, perhaps using various substances to try and help calm themselves down that maybe aren't the best <laughs> choices. So those would be my red flags. When you talk about routines, they have to fit these routines. What, what are these routines? These are things that people are doing to avoid situations that might make them anxious. Is that what that means? Yeah. So it's avoiding, you know, a situation where I don't feel like I have a lot of control um, over what might happen. So a lot of preparing, a lot of anticipation of threat, you know, a lot of looking for the bear in the room, um, which maybe there is no bear, but there's always this fear that the bear might show up. Yeah. And, and you talk about therapy, I, you don't have to go. I know this is something people go to lots of training for, so you can't express it all in one short soundbite, but what therapies do you rely on in general for treatment of anxiety? I use uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a pretty mainstream since the 1960s approach for anxiety and depression, looks at how I think affects how I feel and how I behave. So the, the key of that treatment is thinking, what am I telling myself in the moment? And if I'm saying, well, what if this happens or what if, you know, or catastrophizing worst case scenario, oh my God, it's gonna be horrible. And I'm not gonna be able to deal with it. CBT is designed to shift that thinking. Um, and it's, it's pretty good um, working on anxiety like that. And the cool part about CBT is if the person is too metacognitive and their cognition is their problem, you can go right into the B part of CBT where you're um, doing behavioral things. Uh, you're let's practice doing this. Let's go try this. You know, you can set up schedules and plans. Um, and so it, you know, it's one of these interesting things about our brain. You know, if I said, feel happy right now, um, you can do things to make yourself feel happy. You can remember things to make yourself feel happy, uh, but it's actually really hard to directly influence your emotions, but we can always directly influence what we're thinking and what we're, what we're doing. And so CBT really leverages that well. And in, in terms of other treatments, Tyler, what are the things that you provide or, or would recommend? I mean, it, there's some people that for whatever reason, therapy is not as easy for them. It could be um, they're not particularly psychologically minded or unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it's that they can't afford it. Um, I, I work in Canada, which has, you know, socialized medicine where, you know, all these things where everybody has access to a doctor, but Show there's off. no coverage of psychologists. Um, so if you had an anxiety disorder, 
um, you could see me and whatever I offer is what I offer and the government would pay for it. But if you needed a psychologist services, you'd have to pay out of pocket. And so mm -hmm. that can be a real, uh, a real hindrance. Um, sometimes anxiety can be so overwhelming that you can't get the kickstart. And I do think that you know, most of our evidence shows that the combination of medications plus therapy in really stuck situations is probably superior to either of them by themselves. Um, and then I try, I try not to make people feel like medication is just a bandaid in that way, because really the goal is to feel better. And, and sometimes people get a little bit pure about whether or not they use medications to get there or therapy to get there. If you're functional and you're enjoying your life and you're doing things that you want to do, that's really what we're, what we're looking for. We're not looking to score points on whether or not you did it without um, assistance. I mean, we've talked about like the big red flags and, and things to look out for, but what about those of us that have like more of a high functioning anxiety how how can we monitor that and like what are some of the telltale signs that you know it's it's going to lead to not being so high functioning yeah, i think it's I, um, oh sorry oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll let you, I'll do it. i think honestly the when you know getting a psychologist's uh, thought first is probably the way i would go at this too so i'm very happy <laughs> uh, to thank you, you. Yeah. um I always tell people to check in with their bodies. Like, where are your shoulders? Are they like up in your, I can't, we're not recording this. Why am I putting my shoulders up to my ears? <laughs> right. Am I like this, you know, yeah, or yeah. People get how's it. your people... jaw? You know, mm -hmm. like I'll find my jaw. I'll be like, oh my God, what was I doing? Mm -hmm. You know, so noticing anxiety manifests in the body and it's usually muscle tension, headaches, um, uh, gut pain. You know, there, there's a reason we have butterflies in our stomach. That's that whole brain gut connection, which I had the plug since that's my gig that I do, mm -hmm. but it's an important sign of anxiety. Like if you, if you're having nausea and having difficulty eating, so those are all like the physical signs and maybe Tyler, you can yeah. be back on that. Yeah. I think, um, it's a, it's a great thing. Like, um, sometimes when we're working with people and we're teaching people therapeutic tricks, I have to walk them through how to do things like deep breathing. Um, and then I will sit there and I'll say, okay, let's, um, exhale and then hold it for five seconds. And then I'll show them how to do it. And while I'm doing that, I'm thinking, holy shit, I was carrying some tension there. That feels really good. You know, I, I've, I've had a busy day. I've been seeing lots of patients. Um, so, you know, sometimes we we kind of forget our position we'll wake up and we have so much to do and we get through our day um you know one of the coolest sort of um sort of focuses of psychology and mental health in generally is this idea that um you know we can do some really relatively quick scans on how we're doing we can check out our posture and our breathing we can take a few short minutes for ourselves do some grounding or some mindfulness and man, you can feel an, almost an instantaneous difference when you take those moments for yourself. And I think some people push, push, push. Um, doctors are notoriously bad for this. Um, but uh, when you take a break, you feel it. And, uh, and sometimes that delta, you got to pay some attention to. If it's a big drop off, you're probably caring a lot. I've always imagined it's a feedback loop or some sort of cycle that just fulfills itself where you have these mental like you get anxiety, it's and it's mental, but then oh. it creates these physical symptoms, the shoulders up, the tightness in the jaw, the back of the neck, and then the body almost reads that and it creates more tension. Speaking of basketball players, like there's something they do when they're shooting free throws, they do this cyclical breathing exercise. You, Tyler, are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. 
and everybody has their routine, right? So it's yeah. two dribbles and a breath or right. three dribbles, hold your breath or talk to yourself or whatever it is, but it, it's, it's a moment to get into that body routine. Um, and you know, it's, a, it's high stakes when you're shooting for millions of dollars, but, um, you know, uh, this is, this is a moment that you can take before you open the door and you're about to give a pitch on a meeting. This is the moment you can take, uh, when you've just finished a phone call and it didn't go the way you wanted it to. Um, and sometimes we neglect those moments and then we get home and we note that we're not, we're not very hungry or we're not sleeping well. We didn't go to the bathroom all day or whatever it is. Um, and so, so these little subtle moments can be really helpful. So when does it cross the line to where you need some medicine medication? Um, well, I think if, if therapy is impossible, um, I think, you know, you want to consider medication. Um, I, I worked with some people that therapy is just not their jam. They, they can either be too meta about it and they can see through the therapy. So they kind of short, short shortcut it. I work with lots of people, especially when some neurodiversity is involved that when you try and get them to practice something, they can already say, well, I can see what you're trying to do here. And you can always, you already see them working themselves up on how it's not going to work. Yeah. And so meta anxiety is always one of those things that kind of makes me cringe a little bit where I go, you know, if you stay in your head and think about this too much, this is going to be a problem. Maybe we should just relieve this for you. Um, and then, you know, I, I, there comes a point where anxiety becomes so disabling, uh, that you're, you're almost not able to function in any way. And I think of the more crippling obsessive compulsive disorders, the social phobias, the agoraphobias, where, you know, you're at a point where you just want to really help them the best you can. And, and, um, doing therapy requires having some degree of, will, you know, non-anxiety about the therapeutic situation. And, you know, so you could even connecting to your therapist could provoke anxiety that you avoid. So, um, so I, I find it can be a nice door opener for people who are therapy resistant. And then for severe, severe disorder, where you're so non-functional, things aren't going, I think you kind of got to throw the kitchen sink at it. Um, and medication could be helpful. Yeah, when, when you're starting people on treatment, either, you know, CBT, or medication, do you guys prepare them for a, a lifelong uh, therapy? Or do you say, or do you see people graduate from it, and then, you know, not come back to see you for these things? How does it usually work for both of you? Yeah, my goal is not to see somebody for the rest of their life. So CBT is structured in a way it's supposed to be relatively short. You know, if you read the textbooks, they say 12 visits, but it really varies on the needs of the person. But my goal is to impart knowledge and skills that they can take with them. They're welcome to come back if they have like a, a problem for a few booster sessions, as we call them. But it is not intended to be long term. We want to impart skills that they practice with us and learn kind of how Tyler was saying the deep breathing, um, the other cognitive skills, and then we, they do graduate. And we, we see it, you know, I, I always tell people when I'm first working with them, our goal is, you know, to remove this disorder, to make it so it's no longer a disorder for you. You know, an, an anxious type will technically probably always overanalyze things, but to the degree that it, it interferes with their life, um, there, are, you know, there's no reason not to think that treatment would result in cure. I mean, it's, it's something that we, we really aim for. Yeah. You know, I think the the subject that Sophie brought up of high functioning, uh, high functioning anxiety is really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would, in the world of music, some of the very best performers I ever met have crippling anxiety off stage, but then yeah. on stage, 
you would never know. They're so charismatic. They have the audience in the palm of their hand. They could do crowd. You could be comedians. They could be doing mm. crowd work and they could seem so amazingly comfortable. But then one-on-one, it's a very different situation, which I think is, is kind of was, was hard for me to still to this day to understand. I feel like most of us, our fear is public speaking. I understand why that would cause anxiety. But if you're not going to have anxiety about that, why is it these other interactions can cause it? these other smaller interactions. One of the cooler things about anxiety is there are strategies that you do that can work work against it. Now they can go overboard, but preparation, for example, is one of the reasons that some very high anxiety people are very, very good functioners. You know, this is the type of person who will study every part of the textbook or, um, you know, practice over and over and over till they get it just perfect. Um, and so, you know, you can be very technically proficient and then you can also have these, these holes of comfort. I'm, I'm very social, uh, you know, I'm very socially avoidant generally. I don't like, um, many, you know, being around lots of people but when I'm talking about things that I'm comfortable about, you know, whether it's psychiatry or science, basketball, um, I can speak in front of a lecture hall and this is not, you know, so you can get these pockets of comfort too, where your, your skill allows you to, to feel safe. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same way where I'm like super high functioning in the workplace where I can just add whatever task it is. I can do it immediately and figure out a solution. But when it's, you know, when I take myself out of that arena, that's when my anxiety is way worse. Um, and like, I know that a lot of my success is because of my high functioning anxiety and because I'm able to push myself to certain limits because of that. And that can sometimes lead to burnout, which is not necessarily good. And that's something that I wanted to get both of your opinions on. Um, what do you think limits are and like how do you know you're burning out and how do you and like for me as somebody who works in a creative field who has a staff that I nurture how do I see that those signs within my uh my colleagues or friends or family so that uh you know me as a high functioning person who's high function anxiety type person who is used to those kind of I guess the the doing too much is normal how do I, how do I manage that so that I'm not putting like those kind of expectations on other people and noticing when they're burning out as well as like myself, because still sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, you're burnt out. Good, good call. You should probably, you should probably go do a mindfulness routine and ground yourself. Um, you know, I, I experienced burned out during the pandemic. We got slammed here in the US. I don't know how, I assume in Canada, it was similar. And I went from in-person to 100% telemedicine. It was just so much immediate change last March. I, when I woke up in the morning, I looked at my schedule and I was like, just somebody shoot me. I did not want to do my job. And that to me is the number one key. If I look at my work that I love to do and I'm like, hmm. And it's not just a day, right? We all have a bad day. So that to me is if repeatedly, it's just like, this is a drag and I'm not getting the same joy out of this. And it just is not bringing me um, what I used to get. That is a really good sign to look out for both in yourself and your coworkers. I I often talk about a a very simple equation to burnout and that's um, more stress than you can tolerate 
plus no hope that it's going to get much better. Um, and, and either of those two things can be fixed, but those two things together, uh, yeah, I say it's, it's a universal pathway to burnout. I've seen the most incredible parents, you know, I work with kids, I've seen the most incredible parents who are working with a child with complex behavioral needs. And then there comes some point where they recognize some limitation in what, what direction things are going for their child. And they, it, it just, all of a sudden, the things that they could do before they can't do anymore. Um, and it's that sense of things not getting better or things not improving that can really weigh it down. So burnout, if you, if you ever feel like you might be at risk for burnout, one of the things to look at is how much stress am I carrying and what can I do to reduce that? And the second is how can I, how can I either um, change the situation or get the help I need so that this situation improves? Because if you can, if you can feel like things will get better, it's very hard to burn out. Um, we all put on our temporary, we'll do it hats for the pandemic when it started to be month three, four, and we recognized, oh, this is not just going to be a few months. Um, then things got really burnouty. Yeah. I mean, this clearly affects everybody in the pandemic. I certainly see this as a rising issue for doctors. I mean, I'll, a lot of us, if nothing else, just the amount of inbox stuff that we have to deal with, the amount of males, a lot more communication with patients about really hard, difficult topics. And it's more than ever before, to the point where I think a lot of us look at our inboxes, and we're just, it, it makes us anxious to think about doing work, which we normally love doing, corresponding with patients, talking to patients, but it's almost a point where it's overwhelming. I, I mean, not almost at point, I think it's at a point already for a lot of people. Um, what Sophie, Sophie had a really great question that I don't know if there's an answer to, but how can you use the stress, which in some ways is very productive, you know, for, for Sophie allows her to run like a thousand different podcasts and this big organization with all these people, but then how do you do that without letting it take over? Like, I mean, is there, I don't know if there's an answer to that. Maybe there's not, but what do you guys <laughs> Um, that's a, yeah, that's a tough question. I think everybody has their unique limits and I think it is going back to kind of what Tyler said. And I said about checking in with yourself regularly and doing things to offset the stress. And so it's, it's a balancing act. I think of our bodies like tachometers. If I'm in the red zone all the time, my engine's going to blow. Right. Yeah. So if I can do things to bring that down, um, whether it's whatever, whatever brings you meaning and purpose is something that really helps. Um, everybody thinks oh, I'll go on vacation and then you come back and it's like the week after vacation is worse <laughs> than yeah, before. Sure. Right? Cause for you're like, Oh my sure. God. The two week you know, vacation includes the week before you leave and the week after. Yeah, you're right. Um, I would say there's another thing I'd really add to that. Um, when you're um, pushing uh, sort of full tilt and things are kind of at their breaking point. Um, when you, um, when you uh, add that to stresses of trying to make people feel better or do things um, as a people pleaser, I think that kind of um, really hardworking personality kind of ties in with a fear of disappointing others. Um, and, and I know a lot of doctors who walk around with hero complexes um, that has, you know, a little bit society puts it on them, but it's also one of the reasons that they gravitate towards wanting to become doctors in the first place. Um, but pretty much most of the high functioning people I know, really super functioning people I know, have a really hard time saying no. 
They have a really hard time saying, you know what? My plate's full. I can't help you with that. Um, one of the coolest tricks you can learn in life is learning how to delegate, how to seek help, how to ask for more resource than you currently have. And I think the, the kind of go get them subtype also includes the don't say no to people because you might hurt their feelings subtype. And so yeah. if you're pleasing yourself, it's a lot harder to get overburdened. If you're working really hard to make everyone else happy, it can get really, really toasty quick. Um, one of the questions that I had based on, um, you know, you're saying like your, your entire schedule filled up within the pandemic. I feel like uh, specifically, like I'm in Los Angeles, it's really hard to find help out here. Everyone's completely booked up. The costs are really, really difficult for a lot of folks. Um, even, even with insurance, um, even with, um, pay scale, but, what are some resources that are readily available to folks that might not be able to find help within a medical professional or can't afford help from a medical professional? Are there any resources that you recommend, any apps, any books, any websites, things like that, that you, you would recommend to people that? There's a whole slew of apps, um, mental health apps that I've kind of been looking at. What are the ones that are actually deemed effective? And sure. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot. And <laughs> you know, the one, I, I don't know if I can name names on here. Is that okay yeah, to give yeah. actual names of apps? Okay. You can name whatever you like. All right, cool. Okay. So the apps that I recommend to people are calm, but that is a subscription service is reasonable. Um, something called Budify. Um, Stop, breathe, think is a good CBT app. Um, and then for people with actually with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is now separate from anxiety in our diagnostic system, um, the, uh, the VA, so the, the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, Veterans Affairs um, Office has a great suite of apps. And one is PTSD Coach. And that one was actually found to be effective in a study to help with PTSD. But beyond a small number of them, the studies that look at them find them to be, they're okay. Um, you know, other, the, the thing that I think I have a hard time with and Tyler, I'd love to know if you have this in Canada are the, um, on-demand therapy services that are being advertised here in the U S. Um, there's one in particular that I won't name that has an ad where the person's having a panic attack gets home and texts their therapist and it's like session tonight. And to me, I'm like, that just perpetuates anxiety disorders because they have a safety net and immediate help and it could backfire. It could be great. And so I don't know what you think about those like online it, therapies that they're probably the worst. The yeah. The, the worst part about it is probably that, you know, that their goal is not anything really much more than being a tech startup to make money. Um, you know, they, they, they cut margins everywhere. They, they're not really great at vetting who is on the therapy end or the, or the, um, or the patient end. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of, um, I don't, I, I don't think we'd be losing a lot if some of those um, big venture organizations didn't exist in terms of helping people. I think it's a, there's a way to make yourself feel better that doesn't really work that well. And I think, you, you know, it's, it's um, getting on-demand therapy. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine that leading to substantive change because 
what it ends up doing is just creates, and I'm sure it's part of their business model, reliance on that therapy. Um, and, and remember, we started this conversation by saying our goal is that you never have to talk to us again. You know, we, we want to see as many people as we can help them and then move on. And if we need to see you for longer, we will. But the, the goal of these companies is to keep users. And that, that scares me a little bit. I would put a big plug for one of the oldest CBT books in the world. Um, I've read it. I recommend it. It's cheap as dirt. It's called The Feeling Good Handbook. Um, it is a classic. Um, Dr. Burns, uh, I think David Burns, I believe. Yeah, it's David Burns. Um, Great who, in the talking heads, by the way. Great. Yeah. Great musician yeah. also. <laughs> Just an unbelievable, uh, simple, classic book. You don't need to get a big fancy new book on CBT. The techniques in the Feeling Good Handbook are time-tested true. Um, and bibliop bibliotherapy, which is our fancy word for using books to help yourself, is an evidence-formed treatment of, of anxiety. Now it's not for everybody, and it, you know, there's some levels where it's just too much to do by yourself. But this is a lot different than the self-help industry. You know, this is a book that's old. It's, a, it's ideas that you can run with. It's why these apps that Tiffany were recommending work because they use the principles of, of CBT. It's not some fad thing or some new thing to try. And so um, the Feeling Good Handbook is a great primer on CBT. Can I ask a, a question based on something Tiffany said? Tiffany, you said that PTSD and anxiety are no longer under the same umbrella. When did that happen? Uh, that happened with the most, well, not exactly recent, what did the DSM-5 come out about 10 years ago? It feels know. very recent, but you're right. It's about it's, 10 years it's ago. It's been a long time. I'm like, geez. Um, so about 10 years ago with DSM-5, they they created a new subcategory for traumatic disorders. Um, I don't own a DSM-5, um, which is a whole other podcast, but um, maybe you know <laughs> the exact term of that uh that chapter trauma but and it stressor is, related disorders thank you oh has been separated out from anxiety disorders um interesting it, the the ptsd again like anxiety a word that's co-opted in lay language quite a bit and ptsd has really unique features that make it ptsd um, being yeah. traumatized is a whole different thing you know um, and and then life experiences that are adverse are a whole other different thing and so one of the goals of the dsm which I'm not, I'm not a fan of the newest version either. Um, <laughs> one of the goals of the, the DSM-5 was to make sure to highlight that, that trauma is its own thing um, and to stop trying to squeeze CBT, um, you know, anxiety treatments into it. Um, that's really that's, interesting yeah. to me because um, like six years ago, I was diagnosed with PTSD and um, thanks to great individuals like yourself have been able to work through that. I was given the tag team therapist, psychiatrist, tag team duo at the time. And um, like, I have way less triggers, but um, it, I do think it morphed into a uh, high functioning anxiety or just general anxiety, just based on everything. So it's interesting to me to hear like clinically, those two things are not the same. It's just, it's just very, it's just my brain going, oh, I need to read more. It's also important to remember that the DSM is not a life Bible or life guide. Sure. It's a way that we classify disorders such that it points us towards different treatments. Um, for example, the, the, some of the great therapies for PTSD involve cognitive 
behavioral therapy, they're just adapted specifically for trauma. So they're trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, so, so, you know, I try, I try to help, I try to discourage people who aren't, you know, in the mental health, you know, uh, provider business to care too much about what the DSM says about something, because ultimately the DSM gives you more than enough latitude to say, even if our criteria don't apply, if you think it, if you think the person needs a certain type of help, you should do that. The DSM is not prescriptive or, or come completely discreet. And so I think that's one of the big mistakes uh, that we make when we talk about the DSM as psychiatrists. We do often use the Bible analogy. It's the Bible of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not the hand of God. It is a bunch of old, probably white men sitting around a table um, talking about things that they think disorder should be grouped into. It's it's not the way our brain works. It's not the way life works. It's just our attempt to categorize it. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let me shift gears a little bit. I have been noticing that in younger people, they, there is a real anxiety about the future, in particular, the climate, which I think is a very reasonable anxiety for young people to have. I tried to look into it and see if there's any studies on this. There was a preprint from the Lancet and preprints, as we discussed in a recent episode, um, can be fraught with danger. Uh, and also in, in one of Sophie's podcasts, you can listen to the ivermectin story where you can see the real dangers come to life because of preprint publications. Anyways, long story short, there, there is, it does look like there is, a, it was a survey done about 10,000 kids and climate change is one of the major triggers for them. It sounds like it's a real anxiety, which I understand. Are, are, I mean, I know in particular, Tyler, you work in, with pediatrics. Is this something you're seeing? Is this something you're noticing a change in? I, I see um, one of the more encouraging things of what I do um, is I see kids um, are so much more socially connected, politically connected and aware than they've ever been. I think it's people like to talk about the downsides of social media and connectedness. One of the big things I've seen is the awakening of, of youth consciousness that is really encouraging. So yeah, I, not only do I see it, it, it lifts my spirits. I, I, I wish tomorrow I could hand the keys over to our generation below us. Yeah, I share the same. I have a, a six and 10 year old. And I mean, obviously they're too young to really know. That's not who was in the survey. I did see those um, survey results. Like I forgot what percentage thought basically humankind was doomed, like 60% yeah, or something. something like we're, all just, <laughs> we're just all dead at this point. Um, so I think I have a lot of faith too, and a lot of hope in the generation behind me. I'm Gen X. Um, so nobody pays attention to me, which is great, but I think the people behind me are going to do great things. So I, I was kind of sad to see that so many were so negative and, and worried about this, but I can see why, I mean, it's something that goes back to what is anxiety. I don't feel like I have a lot of control over the situation and climate change, man, I don't know how you feel in control over that other than volunteering your time and doing your own part as much as you can. For sure. All right, let's close it out on that. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for for joining me. And uh, let's get some plugs in right now. Uh, Dr. Tiffany Taft, where can people find you and plug whatever else you want to plug? Yeah, so I, I live on Twitter in the social media world um, at Dr. Then Tiff Taft. Uh, there's another Tiffany Taft on Twitter that has the oh. full name. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> what does she do? Uh, 
I don't know. She might be a psychologist, I think. I need to go wow. look and see again. I that's, remember that's when creepy. I tried to get the handle, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so that's where I am on social media. Um, that's about all I have to plug. You know, I don't want to plug my my job or anything like that. So uh, connect on Twitter and like I met you guys. So yeah. many great things come from Twitter. The best thing out of Twitter. Um, and uh, Tyler, what about yourself? Yeah, same. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Tyler Black 32, 32 for Magic Johnson. Um, so uh, uh, so I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, I've been really working hard to, to, to remind parents at the start of school uh, during our now second year of the pandemic to give their kids a break, uh, to let them be kids. Uh, let's not overload them with academic chores. We have enough on their plate. Um, there's a lot that we can do right now to make kids' lives easier. We can't change, individually change the pandemic. So I would just really encourage everybody to, if your kid comes home and they have lots of homework, push back against that. Kids don't need lots of homework right now. <laughs> Down with homework, boo, homework. <laughs> uh, yes, something we can all stand behind. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm sorry, did you did you say your Twitter account, your Twitter handle? Yes, yeah, okay. Tyler Black 32 yes, because it has Magic Johnson of and course, 32 of course. is Magic sorry, Johnson I, with the Lakers, yeah. You said that and every time you mentioned the Lakers, my brain just yeah, shuts yeah. off. <laughs> uh, Sophie, what about yourself? Uh, you can uh, follow my podcast network at Cool Zone Media on Twitter and Instagram. We have content every single day of our lives. Um, and you can follow me at Y underscore Sophie underscore Y because I ask myself that question every time I go on Twitter. <laughs> Please follow all these people. They're amazing. Listen to all the shows that Sophie does. They're all my favorite shows. And, and that's that's what I listen to. Thank you guys so much. Dr. Taff, great to meet you. Tyler, love you, buddy. It's always good to have you. Thank you for coming on. Same, Sophie. Thank you so much for coming on. Go Warriors! You had uh, to no, do that's that. it. That's it. You I had have to, to do it. Right. You had to do it. And that's the editing power I have. <laughs> this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.